Cool. All right. So we're going to talk about love and um, romantic relationships. And today we're going to discuss romantic relationships as sadhana. That is, intimate relationships as a spiritual practice. So really, what role does romance play in yoga? Or what role does um, love play in spirituality? And this is an age-old debate in India. There was often debate, ancient debates, about what a householder um, can or cannot do, spiritually speaking. Can a householder, somebody who is married and has a family life and lives in the world and has to manage their business, can they truly be spiritual? Meaning, can a householder even think to attain enlightenment in this life? Or should a householder just perform her duties as best as she can and hope that in her next life, she will feel spiritually persuaded to leave the world behind and become a sadhu or renounce, renunciate? Welcome, Nick. Good to see you. So when Tantra shows up, you know, in 900 AD around that time, hello, Gabrielle. G is actually right there in this house. Funny. <laughs> But so when Tantra starts to show up, there's this conversation that householders actually are uniquely predisposed um, for spiritual work. There are unique opportunities that present itself as a part of living in the world that can help you rather than hinder you. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about how relationships hinder us, how they help us, and how we can maybe use yogic knowledge to skillfully navigate this uh, exciting terrain. So that being said, before we began our quest, our adventure into the realm of love, this meandering through the lawn of um, Nisha's love drunk rambling, let's first remind ourselves what the promise of yoga is or at least what yoga's conception of happiness constitutes. Then we'll use that conception of happiness as a yardstick as we explore love in its various forms today. So that yardstick then, we might find it in the Yoga Sutra, appearing around anywhere between 500 BCE to 580. Nobody really knows. But in this ancient text, yoga is defined as Chitta Vritti Nirodha. That is the suppression of the mind stuff. So granted, yoga's promise to you is that you can expand the possibilities of joy that you have every day. Yoga's goal is to make life more enjoyable, to make life meaningful, to ennoble your existence, so to speak. The way to do that then is to suppress these chitta vrittis or to get rid of this mind stuff. So let's talk about what this mind stuff constitutes. Primarily, it's all that chatter that goes on in the mind, convincing you that you are X, Y, and Z, when really you are none of those things. So the next line in the Yoga Sutra, after Patanjali describes the process of yoga, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, the very next line is tada drashtu svarupa vastanam, which is you are established in your true nature. So when the mind stops, you are established in your true nature. Thereby, you experience happiness. So that's just yoga's standard of happiness. So what does this look like? It can be the shavasana at the end of your yoga class, when you touch a happiness that is so sacred, so deep, and so fulfilling. And you're lying there in shavasana, and you just feel so great. But what you notice about that is you are not thinking, you are not moving. So you have, at least for a few moments, nirodhahad the chitta vrittis. You have suppressed the mental chatter. 
But if you look deeper still, you will see that this mental chatter is nothing more than your personality personalifying itself, if I might have poetic license to use that word. So all that you think you are, you know, graceness and nickness and nishness, comes down to just a, a conglomeration of stories, stories that, you know, you've picked up here and there from what other people have said to you, stories from the ones that you come up with or things that you've identified with. So maybe someone says Nish um, at X and then Nish has X now, you know, he's, he's got that trait, whatever. So this whole realm of constructing a self is a chitta vritti. Personality is mental chatter. So then we can redefine this yoga business. And for today's discussion, you'll see why it makes sense to do this. We can redefine this suppression of the mental chatter in another way. We can say yoga is the complete dissolution of the personality. The more you are able to dissolve your personality, meaning the less of a trace of you is left, the more joy you're going to get in any given moment. So take, for instance, the simple example of eating a strawberry that I love to talk about. You're eating the strawberry. There are four levels of enjoyment. The way to least enjoy that strawberry, strawberry, the lowest rung on that ladder. Oh, hey, welcome, Bilan. Good to see you. So happy you're joining us from the car talking about love today, which uh, G tells me that you're very fond of. Of course, Cancer Moon. <laughs> me too. So we're talking a little bit about the strawberry, yes? The four ways to enjoy the strawberry. The first way, you eat the strawberry, but you're thinking about your plans later this afternoon. Ah, I have to give that person a call. Better get on that meeting. I got to sort out my life, etc., etc. So in that moment, you're least enjoying the strawberry because you're not there with the strawberry. You're missing the strawberry. Tragically, most people live their entire, you know, 90 or so lives and they've missed it. You know, they're on their deathbed and they realize, oh my God. So I got married, um, I ate some cereal, but I missed all of that. I missed my first kiss, I missed my first job. Everything had happened, but while it was happening, I was thinking about the next thing. I always wanted to go to Harvard, but when I got there, I was thinking about the Facebook slash Goldman Sachs, and whatever, you know? So you missed it. That's the worst way to enjoy the strawberry. The Adam Sandler movie, Click, actually explores this. I'm, we're not gonna debate Adam Sandler. People have fought me on Adam Sandler. You know, the, the thing that I debate most on is not Tantra versus Sankhya. No, it's actually whether or not Adam Sandler is a positive voice in our community. So we'll leave it at that. Um, but the movie Click explores this phenomena, rushing through life, um, never really enjoying anything. Oh, hey, Connor, good to see you. So that's the worst way to enjoy the strawberry. The next best way to enjoy the strawberry is to eat it, but still be thinking thoughts, maybe about other strawberries in other places. So now you aren't thinking about, okay, tomorrow's phone call. You're thinking about strawberries, but you're not thinking about this strawberry. You're thinking about other comparative experiences with strawberries. You're thinking about strawberryness, if you will. So you're not really enjoying the strawberry. Granted, it's a little more satisfying to you than the previous example, but you know, not quite there. The, sec uh, the, the second best or the next way to enjoy the strawberry is to not think about anything else, not even compare the strawberry to any other strawberry, but to just taste the strawberry and say, ah, good strawberry or mm, sour strawberry. You know, because now you and the experience are very close. There's no other thought taking you out of that experience except one thought. And that thought is your value judgment. Ah, good strawberry. Note that this can be a precognitive event. 
So yoga is a very deep work. It's a precognitive type of work. We're not just trying to silence the mind on a surface level. Thoughts can happen even when you don't think you're thinking. How about that one, huh? So you might be eating the strawberry and you go, ah, nice strawberry, ah, ah, ah. That's the second best. The best is when you're just eating the strawberry. Because if you're just eating the strawberry, there is no longer a you and a strawberry. There is just the strawberry experience, strawberrying itself. In that instance, you, all traces of your personality have been subsumed into the ocean of strawberryness. It's all just tantalizing flavor. That's the most satisfying strawberry you've ever had. And you've had glimpses of this. As a child, you lived almost in a perpetual state of this. Maybe you had a great vacation when you were in this state. You just thought about yourself less. Okay, good. So that, we'll say, is our yardstick for happiness. Let's turn to love now, and let's see how love fares inside this framework of happiness, romantic relationships. Let's look at Hollywood. I think uh, it might help us or serve us to evaluate the various ways our culture has packaged and sold love to us, or the various ways we expect love to satisfy us. You know, so <laughs> puppy love, the best love, that's it. Less TV is little children. Um, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. But um, yes, to love as children, right? You know, once I, I, I even said one time, I was thinking, I, I had the purest love or had the best time in my life when I was around like nine, you know, then puberty hit, I discovered that I, I had a sex drive and that, that was it, you know, so in one way, celibacy might be an attempt to return to, you know, <laughs> but in some ways that sex drive complicated it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but yes, innocence, innocence, strawberry innocence. <laughs> Stories always go up till weddings and that's it. Precisely right. Precisely right. So I would say there are two conceptions of love in Hollywood. So, but it, it it's worth looking at because for some reason, the media or advertising doesn't, you know, let's not project an agenda into advertising. Let's just say that there is a clear profit incentive to make stories that people want to buy, right? And it probably is more telling of us as a culture than it is of the powers that be that the stories we want to buy are of two types. So, you know, this happens a lot in the yoga community. People are like, why are just, why are there just white skinny girls on the yoga magazines? Clearly this is LA yoga journals fault, you know, and then you go and ask LA yoga and they're like, look at our 2007 issue. We put a guy on there, hairy legs and all sold no copies. We almost went bankrupt. You know, they're just doing what they can to survive, etc. The problem might be in, in what we're, we're consuming, yes? So it, with regards to love, the first narrative is Emily absolutely hit the nail on the head is that narrative of the novelty of love um, as a romantic experience. Even here, there is a kernel of beauty and truth. So let's break this up. On the lower end of the spectrum, um, it's, it's sex dressed up as love, right? So we've all heard the adage sex sells. And in the worst forms of this, it's just, you know, capitalizing on, on a sex drive. And we're actually going to unpack today what that sex drive is. But capitalizing on the natural urge to want to consume um, sexually stimulating images. So erotica sells. And so, you know, the media, a lot of sex is presented as love. So, you know, advertising with the burger and the, all that stuff, you know, um, that's there. That's definitely there. But let's give the movies a little more credit. So not just sex, let's go to the rom-com world. It's a little bit more. 
So it's not just, okay, we're fucking now. Actually, it's, 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 oh, looking across the room and the eyes meet. It's the party. There's the manic pixie dream girl. There's the manic pixie dream guy in person. And it's like, okay, the eyes meet and there is a moment, a standstill. And then the person disappears and there's a quest to find them. You know, like in um, Big Fish, when even McGregor's character says, when you fall in love, the world stands still. What they don't tell you is that it rushes up to catch up, you know, and then everything happens so quickly. And then he loses her and he spends the next couple of months working to win her name. Something very romantic and spiritual about that. But there's often this pursuit of a target or a query or like pursuit of love. And you're going there and you meet them. And then there's a series of unfortunate events. There are challenges. There are barriers to consummating that love. Um, and slowly, slowly, you know, the two people, they get on each other's nerves. They frustrate each other. They might not know that they want each other, you know, enter Taylor Swift, you belong with me, all that stuff. Like she's there in the window waving at you, but you're going out with popular girl who doesn't really care about you. You're just a football player to her, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then ironically, the dorky girl shows up in a dress and now it's okay. Uh, anyway, we'll get into that. But uh, there's all that, you know, you miss it. You miss it. It's right there in front of you, but you miss it or there are barriers between you and it. Sounds quite, quite similar, yes? Sounds like a metaphor or an analog to our spiritual quest. So, you know, you're going about this romance and then, you know, the challenges are delicious exactly because it gives that a story, a kind of thing. And then it finally happens. Despite all odds, there's that first kiss by the prairie, you know, and uh, stop them mid-sentence. You had me at hello you know, um, and Jerry Maguire, all that stuff. So then they make out, bam, it's great. Uh, and as Emily points out, that's where the movie stops. You know, so your soul, this like saccharine novelty of falling in love, but not being in love. So let's just say now, just to start off, that our cultural context for love does not offer us any kind of reference with what it means to be in love. We only know what it means to fall in love. And so oftentimes we seek that high. And when we're no longer falling, when we've actually landed, we don't feel like this is where we should be. So we try to go and fall again. Um, this is the strawberry experience. We're missing being there. We finally got where we were headed, but we haven't learned how to be there. That's the first problem. So you get that version of falling in love. Yes. Um, but then you get the other version too the darker version. So I actually think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a rather mature depiction of love, you know, because Jim Carrey, there he is, he's falling in love with, okay, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Ramona Flowers, like whatever, right? He's falling in love with her. Um, and they realize, they realize that the relationship is fraught with struggle. It's painful. They don't get along. They fight. It's dark and you know, um, they're tearing each other's hair. Like, ah! And so a technology shows up and that technology allows people to remove memories. So this couple decides to erase any memory they had of each other and just move on with their lives because obviously that relationship didn't work, right? So this is a mature love story because it starts at the point at which relationships start getting sour. In this love story, the characters decide, okay, it's gotten sour, we're gonna throw it away. Yet, 
And yet, as it's being thrown away, as the process of memory erasal is happening, Jim Carrey's character gets this intuition that there might be something worth preserving in this relationship. So he goes on this quest to undo this memory erasing. He tries to remind her who he is, all very tragic and beautiful. And finally, in the end, sorry to spoil it, if you haven't seen it, it's great. It's great all the way through. But finally, in the end, she's like, why don't you want to go through with this procedure? Our relationship sucked. And she says something like, okay. He says something like, okay. You know, he's accepted it. He's accepted that things can be meaningful without always being joyful, right? So he's sensing that their meaning and happiness are two different things. Whereas most movies don't quite get there. For them, you get the literal happy ending. And they don't really talk about the transiency of happiness as we've discussed in previous classes. But in this movie, they recognize that beyond joy and happiness, there might be meaning. Okay, but here's the dangerous part though. There's another way to chase love. And that is to chase the darkness of love. So Hollywood gives you the falling in love, saccharine, sunshine version. But in reality, um, as the great philosopher, uh, Alan de Botton, one of the highest paying philosophers, actually modern philosophers, um, I guess they don't pay him the big bucks for nothing. But Alan de Botton says, um, you actually seek the love that you purposefully seek the love that will harm you. Because your model for love comes from watching your parents and most people grow up in rather damaged households. Like no matter how good your parental structure might have been, chances are that love relationship was fraught with peril. I mean, after all, you can't blame your parents. They were grown, they grew up on 90s sitcoms that, like we said earlier, taught them how to fall in love, but never taught them how to be in love. You know, so they had no cultural context for it. And they got, you know, all sorts of fights or whatever. And they, in doing their best, might have failed to love you in the way that you needed. So you might end up going out and looking for the only model of love you know, which is a love that perpetuates and repeats those patterns in which your parents have failed you. So that being said, you can become kind of obsessed with, quote unquote, bad love. Um, and I don't want to say bad love, but, you know, this kind of chasing complexes. I want to point you to something, though. In both instances, whether you are chasing the high of falling in love or you're chasing the sadomasochistic pain of repeating patterns because they are familiar to you, in both cases, it's about you. You're still there. Victimhood is the ultimate form of narcissism because as long as you're able to say, I'm a victim, you can talk about yourself, right? Do you notice people who sometimes get illnesses? Oh, they love it. They love it. They, you know, this cancer thing. Oh my God, what a, what a joy at dinner party. I don't want to say that. It can sound flippant. And, you know, and a lot of people are suffering very quietly and should talk about their pain. So it's a complex issue. And there are instances in which it is a positive communal experience to, you know, share pain. And in the old days of yore, you know, Irish communities, tribal Irish communities would gather together and banshees would scream, you know, early Greek communities, the, the, um, predecessor of the Greek chorus and Greek tragedy were people screaming. So not to say that there isn't value in expressing pain and moving it out as energy. I'm pointing to a different thing. I'm pointing to the ego's natural inclination to make more stories, to make itself into something. And it doesn't have to be business mogul. It can be sufferer of X, Y, or Z. You know, and there's a lot of modern scientific um, medical research. I couldn't pull up 
a citation for you off the top of my head, but if you're interested, we'll talk about it. But people studying cancer recently that say a lot of times the barrier to getting better is attachment to that sickness, you know? So when people are actually given meaningful ways to come out of their condition, they actually don't really want to, because at least it's familiar, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the point I want to make here, you know, we've gone into some dangerous territory there. There's some political incorrectness that I might have crossed. And if so, I'm definitely open to having a discussion about it. Um, but that being said, both these cases, they're self-serving. So whether you're looking to fall in love, you're looking for a high, you're looking to get off somewhere. And if the event that you're looking to repeat patterns of the past, you're still looking to get off somewhere, or at least you're looking for something that is dualistic. Here's you, here's them. Regardless of what that um, equation looks like in actuality, there's still a you. So what's the in-between then? What's, what's the solution to this? And before we get to the solution, might I just offer that um, I think Charlotte Joko Beck, she's a San Diego Zen Buddhist in the 60s, very beautiful spirit. I definitely highly recommend her book. Um, I'm blanking on it, but Char Charlotte Joko Beck, Zen author. She says, you know, um, it used to be chop wood, carry water and then become enlightened, what do you do? Chop wood, carry water. She says now in modern Zen, it's make love, drive freeway, become enlightened, continue to make love, drive freeway. I love her. But she says something, she's like, the reason relationships don't work is because you approach it like watching TV. And you know, with, with Tinder and, and the, the emergence of the, the modern dating landscape, it really can feel like you've gone to a store and you're swiping on a shelf. You know, you're looking for something that will match up. So you're in dangerous territory when you have a list. Not to say you shouldn't know what you want, but it seems a little bit of hubris to presuppose that you know what you need, you know, or that you know exactly what your partner should be. And that robs the whole thing of mystery and romance. Oftentimes, the, the thing you can take away from romance stories is it's usually those people that you don't expect who is the one that you fall in love with or the person that you actually didn't like, you know, et cetera. Um, I actually would point you to Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. He writes a book called Nicomachean Ethics. And in it, he talks a lot about love. And he advises us to fall in love, not with those people who are similar to us, because those people make good friends, but instead to fall in love with those people whose qualities we want to have. You know, and it's an energetic argument. It's an argument that, you know how people look like they're dogs? Again, being a little flippant here. But you tend to become or meet in the middle with your partner. And so actually, um, Anodea Judith, the Western chakra specialist, says that love can happen when two people have opposite chakra polarities. So you might be strong in the upper three chakras. Someone who is also very spiritual and strong in the upper three chakras might be a good friend, but maybe might not be a good lover. But someone who maybe is more grounded and has a more developed lower three chakras might be a perfect energetic component because one without the other is unbalanced. So there's advice like that, right, etc. But when you are falling in love and um, Charlotte Jokoback says, sometimes it can be like TV. So you want to watch channel four, you know, that's what you get off on. You enjoy your cartoons on channel four. So you meet someone at the club, right? And for all intents and purposes, they come off like a channel four, you know, they're like, they've got all the traits, you know, they read 
they read Ram Dass's Be Here Now. They've got the, you know, the beads, everything. It's all checking out. Rudraksha beads, everything. It looks really great. And you think they're Channel 4. And after all, you want to watch Channel 4. And then what happens? You move in together and you realize they are actually a Channel 6. No, wait. Now they're a Channel 12. Wait a minute. Now we're on Fox News. You know, like people aren't one thing. But we reduce them to one thing because that's the way we've been brought up to approach the world. So we like to reduce. In yoga, this is called a vishaya or a vikalpa, meaning a phantasmagorical or fantasy projection in an attempt to simplify the world so it's less scary, you know? So we pretend to know what's actually going on. Like we eat the strawberry and we pretend to know what's going on, but really the process is a great mystery. You know, the explosion of flavor on the taste buds, the movement of receptor to efferent to efferent neuron, you know, there's so much going on. And sometimes scientists really, you know, the, the moment when a scientist realizes she knows nothing, that's her awakening. When she realizes the more she studies, the less she knows the fuck is happening around her. That's her moment of like awakening, because those of us who don't know very much pretend we know everything. You know, so it's valuable to study and learn because then you realize that actually, you know, jack shit, everything you thought you knew is just a model that fails to describe the totality of not just who you are, but who the world is. So we abuse ourselves by limiting niche to niche. You know, the worst thing I can do for myself is to give myself attributes, traits, job descriptions. What if I told you I was a yoga teacher? you know? And then what's going to happen when I want to quit this whole business and play cello in the woods, you know? What's going to happen if I told you that I was a nice person and then I did something that wasn't so nice, you know? Am I going to ignore it? Probably, you know, because I've reduced myself to this. Um, But how sad, you know? Because Nish, and this is the ultimate act of humility, uh, uh, bragging for me, Nish is way cooler than anything I could come up with for him, you know, Or, or it. Uh, The phenomena of Nish is infinitely mysterious and I should not even pretend to understand it. Yet, here I am pretending to understand who you people are because I've had what? Like, at best, Grace and I have had a couple of years hanging out, having tea, and I sort of know what she's about. I really like what she's about, but honestly, I don't know what the fuck's going on in Grace's face, uh, head. I don't know who she is. And I shouldn't pretend I do, you know? And I shouldn't pretend she's the person I met five years ago at Elysee Coffee talking about romance and Lord Byron, you know, like that would be an act of disservice to grace. Yet we do this often. We see someone and say they're a channel four and we are surprised when they're not, you know, and then we go, okay, I wanted a channel four. I got a channel 23. Now I'm going to break up, you know? So there's usually a, a, a period before breaking up where you fall into the trap of trying to fix them. You know, you're like, look, 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 you were a channel four when I met you. Now you're a 23, but we can work. We can get you back to four. So then you launch into a whole bunch of manipulative actions like, oh, I'm happy when you do X. I'm sad when you do Y. I'm going to use my feelings now to try to police what you do and don't do. You know, this strategy worked for you when you were a baby. It's one of the very scary forms of parenting in the West. It's like, you know, you're living in an apartment with two really big people and you're a baby. You know, it's kind of scary being a baby and there are these two big people and you learn that these people are responsible entirely for your like sustenance. You know, if you piss them off, they might eat you. You know, it's like scary, these two big people. So you learn early on that if you cry, they get you what you want. You know, if you become upset, they'll do everything in their power to fix your being upset. 
you know? So in a relationship, you might adopt that same strategy. You might use your upset as a way to get them to go back to channel four, but they're only occasionally on channel four. They're on 23, they're on 17, because, you know, they're not a person. They're not this personality. They're a complex phenomena of influences, like what that thing is that I'm married to. It's like, I don't know, but it's beautiful and I love it. And I love the mystery and profundity of it, you know? Um, but I shouldn't pretend that I know it at all. Uh, how it's manipulated spell what you want. I need to change the channel to someone you love. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, remember, there's a disclaimer here where there's a healthy way of communicating, etc. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, a, the snake will shed its skin only at the rate at which it's ready to shed its skin according to Ram Das. So this means you can't really teach anybody anything. Like yogically speaking, um, people learn when it's time to learn. You And I've noticed this in class too. I will give the same cue over and over and over. And I have people, you know, who have been coming to my class for a while now. Every single class they'll come. And I'll say the same thing. Lift the backs of the thighs towards the ceiling or press the shoulder blades into the back. They, I will say the cue, you know. And then I'll try to say it different ways, you know, broaden across the car vault or whatever, you know, and I'll say it over and over and over. And one day when they're ready to hear it, they'll hear it and they'll do it. My ass, I had anything to do with that. They were learning at their own rate. You know, I just so happened to be the, the, the spare yoga teacher in the room who did it. If not me, someone else would have done it. But it's an illusion to think I'm teaching anybody anything. You will hear in what I have to say exactly what it is that you're ready to hear. And you will forget the rest. You know, so as if I'm giving you anything here that you aren't already doing for yourself, you know, we're just sitting and growing. So that being said, if you are a completely in independent, evolving entity, then all I can do for you is to let you be just as you are now. But if I resist that, if I think, oh, you could be better, I am denying the truth of your existence now. Or if I say to you, you were better in the past, I am denying the truth of who you are now because I don't like it. The simple fact is we are chronic escapists. We don't like being in the moments that we're in and thereby we miss our life because we're always trying to adjust this moment to be something else. I notice it even in this class, you know, I'm like, maybe I can do the lighting a bit. Maybe if I use dragon's blood incense as opposed to Nag Champa, ah, then we'll have a, you know, cause I depend on channeling a lot. So I wouldn't be able to give these classes if I came up with anything. So I have to make sure that I'm in the right state for this, you know, this thing to happen that I'm watching with you too. So I get obsessive about that. I'm like, I, with the Nag Champa, I was less in that state. With the dragon's blood, I was, you know, and you try to, but that's just more escapism. It's me escaping the way things are, you know, maybe for some need for this to be productive for us, you know, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from, but that being said, I hope that answers it. G why um, in the ultimate form of love, we actually don't care about making the person better because we can't do anything, you know, like the illusion that we can do something in the world is something that yoga, Zen, and a lot of the Eastern traditions wants us to move away from. Things unfold naturally, and we don't act. We are the instruments of action from some other natural principles working through us. So at best, we are life living itself. We are not the liver. You know, we are not the doer. We are the watcher, the observer. So yogically speaking, the best thing you can do for your partner is one, not to project any kind of ideals as to what they should or are, should be or are. You don't know, they don't know, you know, all you can do is show up and be there for exactly the way that they are. And that requires that you 
are full stop, you know, because you really got to be there to really see them where they are and really meet in that space. Yeah, we'll talk about the chakras a little bit if we've got some time. But anyway, as we were saying, you meet the Channel 4 at the club, right? And then you go home. Um, and Eckhart Tolle has a really good point. He says the problems don't start happening until you move in with each other and then you're trapped. That's when it really happens. And Eckhart Tolle has this beautiful idea about the pain body. He says that your complexes on a precognitive level um, become this autonomous entity that he calls the pain body that has ways to trigger someone else's pain body you know and it's crafty so it waits till two people are stuck and then it knows it can feed you know so it knows now it's the time to come out with all that darkness you know and suddenly you're like oh my god who did i move in with their face like their face changes when they're angry at you they look like someone else you know and you get scared sometimes you're like what's going on um So all of that being said, there's this weird refractory period where you meet someone, they're not on a channel four, you wanted that. And then you're trying to get them back to channel four. So you do that for maybe six months to three years, for some people, 20 years. And it's 20 years of absolute, like miserable fighting, you know? I need you to be Y. You know, when I met you, you were Y. Why are you X and Z now? And you're going through this whole thing and there's all this relationship drama. And then finally you're like, "Ah, I'm done divorce. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go date. And then what happens? It, recycle. It happens all over again. Um, which author, Grace? Oh, um, Eckhart Tolle with the pain body. I think it's in, um, I, I read it in a new earth, but I'm, I'm sure it's also, sorry. I'm sure it's also in uh, power of now. Actually, it's probably in power of now. Power of now. That's an excellent, excellent book of meditation. I prefer a new earth though. Anyway, so that being said, um, you know, people end their relationships when they no longer, when the relationship no longer serves them. Do you see that? There's something going on here. There's still a self-centeredness where it's like, this relationship is supposed to do something for me. And, you know, and it can be in, a, in, in even a noble way, like this relationship is supposed to make me a better person. Why? Why does that person have, you know, why do you need that person to be a better person or etc.? cetera? Um, but in some sense, you're like, okay, I need to get some kind of gratification, security, something. So there are conditions there, you know, there's some neediness there, but that neediness or that desire to get from something outside of us, something comes from us not knowing that we are complete in of ourselves. And we cannot expect anybody to just feel that when you tell them. Like you look into someone's eyes and you say, brah, you're divine. You're God, bro. You are all, you are it. And you have inside your heart, everything you need to be happy. You know, you can tell them that and you can tell them that enthusiastically. They'll still go shoot up tomorrow, you know, because they don't believe that yet. And in truth, not not all of us do yet. We're getting closer, but the more we meditate, the more we sit down and stay quiet the more we're able to nirodaha archita vrittis, meaning the more we're able to cease identifying with the stories we tell about who we are and about what the world is, the more and more we get in touch with this fullness of being. You know, it's, it's, it's not a thought. It's not a concept. It's not a philosophy that will save you from the dilemmas of life. It's a palpable feeling. You start noticing that this is enough. You know, I will call it a this is enoughness. You know, so you'll be sitting there and there'll, there'll be a screaming match. Of course, there might be, you know, that's just part of being in a relationship, but it won't be bad. You'll be sitting there going, okay, cool. 
I don't need it to be any other way than it is now. This is exactly the way it is. And I see it. And with loving awareness, I accept it. Then even in moments of pain, there's a sharp beauty or a meaning there. But there will be less moments of pain because no longer are you fighting to renegotiate your personalities. Because unfortunately, if we really look at it, what are modern relationships except two people renegotiating their personalities to better fit into each other's lives? Because everybody has such a strong idea about what their life should be. Five-year plan, 10-year plan. Oh, it's horrific, you know? I had a friend who loved music. She loved music so much. Her mom, her mom's dream was to be a concert pianist beautiful player but you know naturally she thought it would be more responsible if she was an accountant so you know she wanted to raise her kids first and she said when my kid goes to college that's when i will leave my work and become a concert pianist this is an exaggeration no doubt high school graduation right mom gets cancer within a year dies like actually dies before she gets to do what she wanted to do but notice the you know this is really sad really tragic and this happens all the time um, I will find this name for you, and I, I promise you I will email this to you. There's a beautiful actor-turned-cancer research specialist, and I'm really into the study of cancer because it's a very mysterious part of medicine, and I think there's a lot of research um, overlapping between the medical community and the spiritual community. But there's an actor-turned-cancer activist who says that when people develop a cancer, and I'll, I'll even cite a secondary source, the war of art. Oh, I forgot his name. The book is called The War of Art. But in, yes, we'll talk, yes, yes. And in The War of Art, um, he talks about this actor turned cancer activist who actually says in their research, people tend, their cancers tend to go in remission when those people do what they wanted to do but didn't get to do before the cancer. So someone wants to be a jazz trumpeter, but instead decided to be a stockbroker, a cancer developed, they quit their job, become a jazz trumpeter, cancer goes into remission. It's not concrete science. It's still, you know, an activist group and somewhat artful research. But he argues the case that a cancer is when your body has a natural urge to grow and express itself that gets stimmied. And then the only way the body knows how to redirect that energy is in the harmful proliferation of cells. You know, isn't that wild? So the idea is that if you just did what your heart called for you to do, you're going to be safer from cancer. Notice that as our society becomes more and more achievement oriented, cancer rates are going up. I don't know. I'm making glib statements about the world now that are probably not true, but at least I've made a disclaimer to you all that I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> so you can't fall me for anything, right? Talking out of my ass. I'm always only ever doing that. <laughs> It's nice to know you're wrong about everything. <laughs> but that being said, um, notice how we're so stuck as to what our lives should be. Like we have five-year, 10-year plans. We seem to know what we need, right? Do we though? Do we really? Or do we just think we know what we need because we were told that we need that? Did we just buy into a culture that said you need X amount of money, X amount of security, X amount of intimacy, X amount, of, you know, and, and now we're going crazy because we're not getting it. And we live our lives so that everything around us serves that purpose. And when it doesn't, we get rid of it. So that's the dilemma. We maybe fight two or three years in a relationship and try to get it to work because we have an idea about what it means for it to work. Maybe that's the problem. You know, we have such a fixed idea as to what it should be do for us what if we let go of that you know if we if we stopped going from relationship to relationship expecting it all to serve us what if we just 
allowed a relationship to be just as it was. And maybe then it will fulfill us more deeply than our own projections as to what a relationship should or ought to do for us. You know, now let's go back a little bit to yoga. And in the yoga tradition, the, you know, the partner is seen as divinity. So we have to go to the bhakti tradition a bit. So in the bhakti marga or the yoga of devotion or the yoga of love, this is the method. You are worldly. You naturally have inclinations to go out into the world and have certain relationships. So you feel brotherly love and friendly love. The Greeks call it philos. You feel romantic and sexual attraction. The uh, Greeks call that eros. And then, you know, there's a higher transcendental love called agape, which the Christians always talk about that, you know, compassion for all beings kind of state. So, there's this concept in bhakti yoga where it's like, if you naturally want to go and have relationships anyway, don't suppress that energy. Instead, redirect that energy towards a spiritual rather than a worldly pursuit. So start to see God as your lover. You know, Krishna making love to the gopis. Now Krishna is your stud. He's like your sexy lover, you know, and all your sexual desire, your romantic love, you experience in that relationship to Krishna. You know, maybe um, for me, I have this love for teacher. So the God Shiva for me is my, my devotional practice centers around Shiva as my guru, my teacher, you know, and that creates that love. So then I don't have to go look for worldly teachers and get enmeshed in there. I can, you know, direct it up to God. Um, I, I crave the love of a mother. You know, so Durga, Kali, and particularly Saraswati all become my mothers, you know, and, and, and then I devote my motherly love to them. So I, I sit in front of them in the role of a child, you know, um, and when I'm scared, I'll ask for to be cradled in the lap of Saraswati. I'll go sit in the grass and be like a little baby and suck my thumb, etc. you know. Um, and all that stuff, when you start to do this bhakti yoga, when you devote your feelings, every time you feel something profound, like a, a piece of music moves you, you go, ah, this is for you. I used to work with a singer. Every time I told her, um, you're a beautiful singer, she would say Krishna's mercy. You know, she was devoting everything, all the fruits of her action to, to Krishna. As it says in verse 47 of chapter two in the Bhagavad Gita, your uh, right is not to, your, not to the fruits of your work. Your right is only to your work. Lay up the fruits of your work to me. Do not be attached to action, nor should you be attached to inaction. Give it to me, give it to me, you know? So the idea of like, okay, you know you're self-serving. What can we do about that? Why don't we redirect that service um, and push the nozzle of that uh, hose in a different direction. So everything becomes service to God, you know, and then something miraculous happens. This is the trippy thing. When you set up an altar, any version of devotional practice, you know, we can't talk about love and yoga without talking about bhakti. It is the yoga of devotion and love. When you set up an altar of any kind, it can be Jesus, it can be an acorn from a forest you love, any kind you go into a dualistic relationship with that thing. You sit in front of the altar, whatever role you want to be, be that, you know? So you need a partner in your life right now. You're lonely. You want a romantic partner. Be that with your deity, you know? Um, you have lost the love of a father. You never knew him and you feel like you need that love. Make, find a deity that can be that, you know, etc. Whatever you need, whatever emotional deficiency you have, instead of going out in the world and looking for somebody to fill that void, just plug Krishna in there. 
Jesus in there, uh, Muhammad, whatever, you know, you can, whatever being you want, plug it in there. Then here's what will happen. You go and sit in front of the altar and you be with that person, you know, talk to them, have conversations, be a little schizophrenic. Remember we said um, religion, uh, this yoga business is just God's schizophrenia. We're all figments of God's imagination. Do that. Talk to these beings, you know, get a mala bead, you know, um, bracelet and just chant holy names all day. Um, there's this book that I highly recommend. It's by an anonymous Russian pilgrim, uh, Christian mystic. And the book is called Way of the Pilgrim. If you haven't read this, it is a spiritual dynamite, you know, um, and he just does the Jesus prayer. He just, uh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Every culture has a version of japa or ma uh, mantra, you know. So you just do that. You just do that every day. Here's the trippy thing. Suddenly, your relationships are transformed. So when you meet people, and now we're going to, what's the difference between people in the world and the deities? When you start to meet people, you're suddenly going to see the deitiness in them. You know, you're hanging out with Durga, the mother. Every woman you meet, you will notice in her that Durga quality. You know, you truly start to fall in love with the world because you are no longer seeing them as personalities. You're seeing them not actually as they are, but closer to what they are. Because they are not Nikness or Nishness. They are more Shivaness, you know? They are more Jesusness. That's more you. Like Jesus is loved because he's authentic. He is what every person is. If they only had the courage to drop their preconceived notions about what they think they are, you know? And look at Jesus. He says, I can of my own self do nothing. All my works my father does through me. And he says, if you but had faith, you would these and even greater works you will do, you know? He says all that stuff. And imagine the humility of a character like that. Um, so that's the, the deep secret of bhakti yoga. Once you start to outsource all of your emotional needs to divinity, then you start to see that divinity in everybody you meet. So once you start to, and, and there are other ways to get to this um, place. So you don't just need bhakti yoga. Um, you know, if, if you are inclined to do this, go buy a harmonium, go buy a guitar, uh, whatever instrument you play, sing songs to God all day, dance in, in the honor of God, have ceremonies for God, you know, make all of your emotions a sacrament to God, eat for God. Every time you eat, say, Krishna, this, this, this food is for you, you know, may it satisfy you. Every time you do yoga, you say, this practice is for, for you. And the you is you, Right. You're doing it for not you as Nish, but you as the divinity, you know? So everything you do, you do it for the real you. And if you do that, you get to this state where people seem really divine to you. Even in their shenanigans, you're like, oh, it's just Durga, you know, freaking out. How beautiful. How divine. Durga freaks out. Sure. You know, I'll take it as if I know what Durga is anyway. Let her freak out. I love her the same, you know? And you, you it's not... It's not painful. You know, the, the thing about sacrifice, it's got a very negative connotation. It, it, people say sacrifice when they mean compromise. You know, sacrifice is showing somebody that you're willing to harm yourself for them. How sick, how demented, how sadomasochistic. That belongs in the New York BDSM dungeon, you know. But instead, it's vaulted as good in relationships to harm yourself as a gesture of love. But the sacrifice we're talking here is not compromise. No, 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 no. Because when you deny yourself, as Jesus said in the Bible, it is the most self-serving thing because you feel the most joy, you know, 
when you completely are able to, in moments of sacrifice, drop yourself um, for that other person, not because, you know, you're in this masochistic, I need to show you how much I love you. So look, babe, look how much, you know, not like that, not that energy, but when you are actually able to quietly, without making a big deal of it, surrender what you thought you need to give someone else what they actually need, you experience a joy, bliss, and meaning far surpassing any other model of relationship you were in, not to presuppose. Then you get addicted to that. It's very self-serving, but in a deeper way. You're serving your actual self. You know, that's the trick. But there, you don't have to just sing songs to God. You know, it's not just bhakti. You can meditate and sit in a Zen Vipassana style and you'll get to the same place because once you start recognizing the fullness of your own being, you no longer need other people to get you off. When you don't need someone to be a certain way, you can start to appreciate them the way that they are. And the way that they are turns out to be way more beautiful than you ever thought and you ever expected possible. You know, the truth of a human being, so beautiful. And this is my human being like this. And you can do that. Once you're in this state, you can say, well, this is my partner and it's exclusive and it's personal because I am not in this relationship with like, I'm not in Krishna Radha relationship with Nick and me, you know, I'm sorry, Nick, it just didn't work out that way, you know, but I am in a Krishna Radha relationship with Hannah for whatever reason, this is the woman that my heart has fallen in love with. And from recognizing the fullness of my own being, I can meet her in the fullness of her own being. And we enter into a Krishna Radha relationship where everything is spiritual and beautiful, you know, but then when Nick and I are hanging out, we enter into a roomy uh, Shams experience where we're brothers and friends, you know, that's that relationship. And it's deep, like seeing Nick, like I'm excited, you know, ecstatic. So ultimately let's close here with the greatest lover there ever was. I just want to suggest the greatest lover that ever was, at least who wrote about it is Rumi, you know? And I just have to say it because no, from, from no fountain has issued a clearer spring uh, of the gurgle of love, you know? From no space was there a whisper of sensuality and, and love as there was from the sky that was Rumi. You know, because Rumi was all space, was all self-negation. There's nothing there where Rumi was, you know. And, you know, historically, Rumi didn't write poems. He wandered around the streets of Konya, um, spouting them from nothing. And his friend, Husham, would record them. So Rumi, and I just will tell you this quick story in closing, was a scholar. He was a famous scholar, and he used to give lectures at the uh, mosque in Konya, Turkey. He was a very celebrated intellectual, actually, but his life was missing something. You know, he was, he was respected, uh, um, had wealth, he had a beautiful wife and children, and life, at least on the surface, looked complete. But he was lacking something. He knew that he hadn't quite found God or he hadn't had a deep spiritual experience. So he started to crave a teacher. One day, He's coming back from the mosque after giving a beautiful sermon and he's surrounded by all of his fans. He's a celebrity, but not like in the obnoxious way, you know, just in like an Obama way, you know, and he's coming down the parapet with all these people and a vagabond shows up and says, Hey, Rumi. And the power of this vagabond's eyes stopped everybody in their track. Rumi had to say what? And he said, who is more spiritual? 
Is it Bistami, who is a Sufi mystic, who said, I am full with God, I am complete? Or is it the Prophet Muhammad who said, here at the end of my life, I have not even tasted a little bit of what God is? Who is more spiritual? And um, Rumi was perplexed. Who is this vagabond who would speak to a, to a celebrity so directly, so bluntly, even to test him with this riddle? And Rumi supposedly got down of his horse walked to Shams and was transfixed by his eyes. And finally, Rumi said, Muhammad, because his container was bigger. He got more water from God than Bistami, but of course he died dissatisfied because he had a deeper hunger than Bistami. And they fell in love like that. Rumi and this vagabond whose name is Shams. Shams is a madman. He's a whirling dervish. He is the first person to make fun of the Sultan. You know, if you pay him money, he'll throw it back in your face. He eventually got killed by and assassinated. Of course, what a true Sufi. Shaved eyebrows, long hair one day, ball the next. You know, black robes one day, eccentric the next. Ch- chased one day, drinking wine the next. He would build buildings just for fun. He was a crazy guy. Rumi was obsessed with him. And they used to, much to the chagrin of his wife, Rumi's wife, spend long hours talking all through the night. They were in love. And finally, Sham said to Rumi, look, if you really want to be spiritual, go and buy me some wine from the tavern down the street. Rumi was horrified. He said, what if people see me there? I'm an Islamic scholar. Sham said, oh yeah, if you really love me, you do it. You know? And Rumi was like, fine. So he goes down there. And this is Rumi's first opportunity to meet regular people at the tavern. That informs his poetry later. It grounds him. But he goes there and his reputation is ruined. Everybody thinks he's gay, you know, because he's obsessed with Shams. His son eventually conspires with friends to kill Rumi's best friend. So Rumi's own son ends up killing Shams, Rumi's beloved. And the story is they stab him in the middle of the night and he falls down a well, but they don't hear him splash, you know? Rumi, driven mad with grief, spends the next few years mourning and crying and grieving, the deepest heartbreak. But then from that comes the most beautiful poetry you've ever heard about love. And in closing, we will just, you know, spout some Rumi a little bit. I just want to say this, though. Rumi's message is about complete dissolution of the self in the other. He found that when Shams died, Shams opened something in him to receive love. He eventually learned how to do it without Shams. But Shams was his lesson, his way into love. Shams showed him how to fall in love. But Shams' death showed him how to be in love. And being in love is happy, sad wordless, wandering, ecstatic, heartbroken. It's all, it's, it's all one. It's this orgasmic feeling of, ah, uh, you know? And Rumi would wander and wander and wander, spouting his poetry. And all of his poems are about dissolution of the self. Give up the drop, become the ocean. The beloved asks the lover, who do you love more, you or me? The lover says, if you were to hold up a ruby to a sunrise, would there still be a ruby? Or would that not all just be a world of red? How beautiful. So let's be like Rumi. Oh, we'll have to close with this. The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. The birds trace circles in the sky with their freedom. 
where did they learn to become so free? They fall, and in falling, they love. They learn. So let love destroy you. Let love wreck you, and then love will build you up in a way that you never expected ever. But meet people where they are. That's what yoga would say. Just as they are. All right, gang. Thank you. Thank you for a beautiful, beautiful day. Beautiful day. We have lots more to say about chakras, and maybe we'll do a part two and get into the you know G asked a question about chakras, and we'll do that and perfection and love. Love is perfection. They're the same same word. They're synonyms. Synonyms when used correctly. <laughs> All right, gang. Thank you so much. I'm actually going to take Hannah for a birthday dinner out now. So if you do have any questions, um, I'm always on Instagram. Shoot me questions anytime, whenever, and I'll do my best. Thank you. May you be in love tonight. Thank you, Nish. Bye, everyone. Take care, Susan and and Emily. <laughs> Cal, I'm sorry you got just got here, but I hope you enjoyed. It's recorded, so I'll send it over to you via email if you want. All right, everyone. Bye, bye, bye. Bye.